0: Phil Bryant and the Honorable Morris McTeague QSO.
1: America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable.
0: This weekend on America's Roundtable, we're delighted to welcome a great American, a principal leader, and a brilliant legal mind, John Yoo. John Yu is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley, a former department assistant, attorney general, and has served in all three branches of government. He is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. His 10th book, Defender-in-Chief, Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, was published by St. Martin's Press in 2020. Professor Yu's other books include Striking Power, How Cyber Robots and Space Weapons Change the Rules for War, Point of Attack, Preventative War, International Law and Global Welfare, Taming Globalization, International Law, the US Constitution and the New World Order, and Crisis and Command, a history of executive power from George Washington to George Bush. His uncountable op-ed pieces and articles can be found on the pages of the Wall Street Journal and other major media. John Yu was an official in the US Department of Justice where he worked on national security and terrorism issues after the 9-11 attacks. He served as general counsel of the US Senate Judiciary Committee. He has been a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, Professor John Yu has been a visiting professor at universities in South Korea, Japan, Italy, the Netherlands, and Israel. And without further ado, Welcome, John. It's great to have you back on America's Roundtable.
1: Welcome, John.
2: Oh, Natasha and John, it's great to be back again with you.
1: Thank you. John, America's founding fathers created the separation of powers between legislative, executive, and judicial branches of government, which was incorporated in the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution vests all legislative power solely in Congress, all executive and law enforcement power in the president and the executive branch, and all judicial power in courts james madison one of the founding fathers and the fourth president of the united states wrote in federalist number 47 and i quote there can be no liberty where the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person today we have a dysfunctional system that goes against the u.s constitution whereby unelected bureaucracy assumed legislative and executive powers while the US Congress abdicated its lawmaking responsibility in order to have unpopular laws passed without risking the chances for re-election. In the book The Administrative State Before the Supreme Court, Perspectives on the Non-Delegation Doctrine that you co-edited with Peter Wallison you focus on a non-delegation doctrine intended to prevent congress from delegating or transferring its legislative responsibilities to the president or the agencies of the executive branch john could you kindly share with us firstly how did we depart from the founding fathers principle of the separation of powers and secondly how does the supreme court as the guardian of the Constitution, as Alexander Hamilton put it, take up a non delegation doctrine in current cases?
2: Uh, Natasha, that's a, a really good question, very complicated. Let me just say I think that when historians look back at the Roberts Court, the current Supreme Court, and even its predecessor, the Rehnquist Court, what they may say to find those courts may not be in the end the Supreme Court and abortion or the Supreme Court and judicial activism, it may turn out to be that the court becomes the primary uh, tool that was used to try to contain this uh, unstoppable the growth of the administrative state. And so you, you put it well, to touch by contrasting the founding vision and what we have today. The founding vision, as you said, is fairly straightforward and clear. There were three kinds of powers, uh, executive, legislative, and judicial. And there's three branches of government exercise. They're supposed to exercise each one uh, president, Congress and Supreme court. And that served us well for most of our history. Even if you look at Abraham Lincoln in the civil war, he still only has four cabinet members, the same departments that existed when president George Washington held his first cabinet meeting, the government really hadn't changed. And I think Lincoln did a pretty good job. What happened, Natasha, this is the question is how do we get to the world today Where most of the law you live under, Joel is under, I live under in the United States, are created by bureaucrats like Dr. Fauci, who decided essentially whether we had to wear masks, whether businesses could stay open, whether kids could go to school, whether we can even meet other family members at Thanksgiving. And Dr. Fauci was elected by no one; his dictates were not reviewed by anybody. Uh, He never had to get a vote for anything he did. How did we cut to that world? What happened was Franklin Roosevelt under the crisis of the Great Depression, used the Great Depression as opportunity to introduce the New Deal welfare state. And the idea was, oh, politics is dirty. Let's move all of the hard policy decisions out of politics and give them to experts. And that welfare state has kept growing and growing ever since without any real limit. And so I think what's going to happen is that the Roberts Court, following the Rehnquist Court, is going to be the first actor to try to constrain and even start reducing the power and size of the administrative state, first by things like this non-delegation doctrine I mentioned in this book that says Congress can't transfer all power over the air or all power over the water, all power over diseases to bureaucracies that are unaccountable to the American people.
0: The leak of a draft opinion on the Dobbs case has placed the Supreme Court's credibility in question, and many may argue rightfully so. And John, the Wall Street Journal's editorial board stated, I quote, a pattern of preemptive leaks of draft opinions would destroy the court, unquote. John, on that very day of the Supreme Court leak, you were at an event in Dallas, Texas, co-hosted by think tanks including Hoover Institution and AEI, and moderated a conversation with none other than Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Talk about the timing and what a serious issue to raise for attendees at the event and the American public. The Washington Post report on the comments relayed by Justice Thomas in a piece titled, Clarence Thomas says Supreme Court leak has eroded trust in the institution. Now, John, could you take us through that unique experience that Friday evening and your engaging and timely discussion with Justice Clarence Thomas and his concerns about the future of America's highest court and our republic?
2: Sure, Joel. And it's a very interesting uh, interview. I hope people uh, take a look at it. I think it's online at C SPAN, and I'm sure it will be online at AEI and Hoover. As you said, the timing was what what caused the news. Uh, This conference had been in in the works for months and months, and it it was really about a held to uh, commemorate and also update a conference from 40 years ago that focused on uh, the problems with African-American communities, particularly in the inner cities, and uh, asking, have the problems been solved or reduced? What kind of strategies can be brought to reduce uh, African-American poverty, crime, uh, decline in the family? and so on, and that you know, that is what Justice Thomas worked on before he was a judge. In fact, uh, you know, I sat next to him during parts of the conference, and he was so excited, taking notes, listening intently, uh, asking questions, and this is what his his true interest and love was before he became a judge. Uh, so as part of that conference, uh, he was supposed to deliver remarks, but instead the uh, organizers asked if I would conduct a, their conversation or interview. With him, And so the timing of it just was within the week, I think, after the leak, a terrible, terrible leak of a full Supreme Court opinion, Uh, not just any Supreme Court opinion, but the opinion uh, in the Dobbs case, which calls for the overrule of Roe versus Wade and the return of abortion to the states for a decision. You know, even though it wasn't the subject of the conference, I could not help but ask him, I think I said, Justice, anything going on at the court these days? <laughs> <And> so he, <laughs> but I tried to, you know, wrap it into the conference by um, saying, you know, the conference was in interesting ways about the decline of institutions, about the decline in the uh, black family, and the decline of neighborhood institutions like schools and policing. What can be done to stop the decline of institutions and rebuild them? And I said, isn't the leak? Uh, part of that story unfortunately uh the leak of a full opinion which has never happened in history before um Mm -hmm. and think about all the important cases that have come before the court before like Brown versus board of education or the watergate tapes or the pentagon papers you could go on and on none of those ever leaked and so i asked him isn't that part of the same trend uh leaking opinion from inside the court is an attack on the institution of the court and the um confidentiality and secrecy you need to have behind the scenes in order to persuade and argue and reach a decision. That's not just about voting, not just about representing interests. And so uh, Justice Thomas, he was uh, very candid in saying, you know, he said he thought that the leak represents a loss of going to lead to a loss of trust between the justices and will change the institution. Hopefully he thinks it can be repaired, but he said it's an undeniable change in the institution for uh, for ill Mm
1: -hmm. and John the first amendment to the US Constitution guarantees freedom of speech freedom of religion freedom of the press right of the people to peacefully assemble and the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances these freedoms which are protected by the first amendment have been gradually eroded and just to mention few examples big tech censorship and shadow banning of majority of our fellow Americans who are in favor of the U.S. Constitution and the rule of law principle, which eliminates the freedom of speech of America's majority, indiscriminatory lockdowns of churches during COVID while, for example, certain large retailers and casinos remain opened, which brings into question the freedom of religion and peaceful assembly, and withholding from public, actually voters, relevant news prior to elections, which brings to question freedom of the press. Uh, John, what is your advice to our fellow Americans? How can they advance the First Amendment as our founding fathers envisioned it? And would you share with us any pending cases regarding the protection of the First Amendment at the Supreme Court?
2: Natasha, I'm afraid you're right, I find free speech... Not just the law of it, but the principle of it uh, under assault in America and many of the ways you describe. you look at the campuses uh, you know where I, I work on a campus, and you see efforts to prevent people from speaking, uh, prevent the uh, sp- uh, speakers, Uh, not just uh, conservatives, uh, although that's taking place a lot, but even some liberals who don't hold conventional views on, say, climate change, or there was actually an unfortunate incident in my alma mater, Yale Law School, where angry students threatened violence and disrupted a panel that was about free speech itself. (laughs) Incredible. You know, it was a, you know, the uh, two speakers who have different views about gay marriage and abortion being in the constitution and so on, but they could agree on the idea that you should have we should have free speech as a society and yet the students you know, successfully stopped that panel from occurring and then as you said, you have free speech uh, under attack by social media companies which are uh, and traditional media companies which I think are making their unfortunately their prejudices known in the types of messages and content that they're policing now and so what can be done partially i think is the market i'm very encouraged that elon musk has promised uh, if he were to successfully buy twitter that he's going to lift these various content bans and that he's basically going to follow the first amendment as his principle even in the running of a private company and i think the other thing that has to happen is the courts have to become much more diligent about protecting free speech rights um and we have to push back on Again, it goes to your first question, Natasha, against these unelected bureaucrats who are at campuses or corporations who are trying to enforce these speech codes. So again, another good example is San Francisco, where I live, uh, one of the most progressive cities in the country. You had uh, members of the school board deciding to take Abraham Lincoln's name off of a school and other engaging other politically correct forms of canceling or deplatforming people, including Dianne Feinstein, the sitting senator from California, no one's idea of a conservative. And they were recalled by uh, the voters of San Francisco who've had enough. I think regular Americans have had enough of this. In fact, I think that has a lot with uh, President Trump's rise back in 2015 and 2016 was he showed he was someone who's not going to be governed by political correctness. And I think there's this larger rejection of it, even though we may hear about it. Mm It sounds like it's the governing ideas from our elites or in the media and so on. But I think most regular Americans have had enough and you're starting to see a fighting back against these efforts to censor and cancel people.
0: John principal leaders like yourself have raised concerns about the future of America's judiciary and specifically the highest court. In the land and how in America the foundational natural rights so clearly articulated in the US Declaration of Independence is being chipped away in a nuanced and subtle manner. And in a recent piece that you wrote in Newsweek magazine, which we would encourage our engaged and enlightened listeners to go to read, it was leading up to the confirmation of Judge Jackson to our Republic's Highest Court. The Newsweek piece is titled, Should Supreme Court Justices Believe in Natural Rights? And you stated, on this score, Republicans would do well to focus less on Jackson's sentencing decisions and more on her eyebrow-raising thoughts about the Declaration of Independence and Natural Rights. Her most remarkable response came not during the hearings themselves, but in the questions for the record after the hearing. In written questions, Senator Ted Cruz asked Judge Jackson, do you hold a position on whether individuals possess natural rights, yes or no? And she responded, I do not hold a position on whether individuals possess natural rights, unquote. John, why should Americans who deeply care about a republic be concerned about how judges across the land view the Constitution and natural rights and the impact on sentencing decisions and even deliberating serious matters at the Supreme Court.
2: Joel, I see you save the hardest questions for the end. <laughs> it is a very deep question of philosophy and the constitutional law. But I think, as you say, it was really crystallized or distilled by Justice Jackson's comments, which I found incredible. Uh, and actually, the, one of the famous things uh, that also came out of the hearings was when she was asked by Senator Blackburn if uh, she could define a woman. Right. And she refused to answer that question too. Why do those in a weird way make sense from her perspective, from the progressive view? And why is it so worrisome? Is because the progressive view is that there are no fundamental truths. There's no fundamental realities like men and women, the nature of, uh, you know, binary nature of sex for all but maybe 0.1% of the population. Uh, that there are no truths in the law. That uh, she was unwilling to say that individuals don't have natural rights. Because under the progressive view, it's just up to the government what rights you get. I found it disturbing because I think that's not the principles upon which our American Republic was founded. Because if she's right, there's no natural rights. Then as I say in the piece, then she also has to deny the Declaration of Independence. And then how can you say things are fundamentally wrong, like slavery, Slavery was really, was not banned by the original constitution. And yet people like Abraham Lincoln, the other radical Republicans at that time said it's wrong. And they pointed to the Declaration of Independence and the natural rights we all have in our individual liberty to work and keep what we make and to have freedom over our basic decisions. And so I that is what worries me about the Progressive Project. That's what worried me about Justice Jackson. But it's not just her. I think it's also... The other two liberal justices on the court she will join who believe, like progressives do, that, I mean, this is a fight goes back to people like the French, the Rousseau and the French Revolution, that man can just make man. Man can make the world anything at once. And they resist the idea that there are certain fundamental notions in in our society, fundamental truths and rights. That is what the Americans experiment though is about that's why we're different than europe and asia because we do believe individuals have these natural rights that precede government the job of government is to uh, protect us and our enjoyment of those rights not to tell us what those rights are and tell us what to do i think that's a that's what makes america uh, unique and it bothers me that we it worries me that we have a very strong movement uh, in the academy and the courts, and as we were talking about earlier, in media that rejects those fundamental American values.
1: We all have been shocked and deeply saddened by the horrific elementary school shooting in which an 18-year-old gunman killed 19 children and two adults in Texas this past week. And our prayers are with the families of the victims of this horrific tragedy. The Second Amendment to the United States Constitution protects the right of the people to keep and bear arms. And it is envisioned as the right for the law-abiding citizens to defend themselves, including from individuals, as in this case, a deranged shooter. And John, let me briefly share your words from your op-ed piece published in 2019 in the Los Angeles Times, titled, Finally, the Supreme Court is Taking Up Gun Rights Again. And I quote... This would also require adopting a natural rights framework that presumptively allows the exercise of the right to bear arms until it infringes on another's equal rights or causes physical harm to a person or property. The Constitution, for example, would not allow the Second Amendment to justify shooting a person or damaging property except in self-defense. Uh, John, spurred by this week's horrific tragedy, there is a renewed debate about gun rights. Could you kindly share your thoughts with us?
2: Again, America is unique from uh, other countries where our constitution does protect individual right to bear arms. No right is absolute. Even the right to free speech we discussed doesn't mean that you have the right to drive around a neighborhood at two in the morning, blaring on loudspeakers your thoughts about the government so every uh, right has has to uh, be balanced against reasonable regulations I think that's really uh, the solution here I think people who take the tragedy in San Antonio you know and also the tragedy in Buffalo New York a few weeks ago they seek a I think a solution that's not permitted by our constitution just to ban guns there is an individual right to have guns there's a natural right to defend yourself so the question really should be what uh, reasonable regulations what steps can we take to stop this kind of violence that doesn't involve taking away people's natural rights so to me the real issue is not necessarily the guns it's our Ah, uh, failures in our mental health system, which we also see in the homelessness crisis that's afflicting many of our major cities. I think that's really the solution. Is you know, banning guns is not going to stop violence. It's not part of. It's not constitutional anyway. It doesn't really get at the real heart of the problem, which I think is uh, mental illness on the part of people who are then carrying out these kinds of attacks in schools
1: right and also we've actually noticed that with illegal immigration there's also illegal weapon trafficking which is not being addressed currently
2: with the border i mean this is not just about people it's also as you say weapons also most importantly drugs other illicit traffic exactly and to me you know, mm-hmm. we could have a debate about what the right level of immigration is but it seems to me you can't address that question until you first as a sovereign nation, establish control over your borders. Once you control the borders, like every nation does, then you should have a discussion about what the number of people, you know, I would probably double or triple the amount of legal immigration in exchange for border control that's actually working. Absolutely.
0: This past week, President Joe Biden visited the Indo-Pacific region. And in A parting gesture from one of the region's bad actors, North Korea fired three missiles after Biden ended his Asia trip. And the Wall Street Journal reported following on Biden's visit to the region, and I quote, But as he departed tuesday for washington after his first visit to the region as commander-in-chief there were signs that the solidarity on display here will face serious tests with indo-pacific countries holding divergent priorities on trade and security and the divide was highlighted when mr biden publicly denounced russia's invasion of ukraine as a catastrophe during the trip but couldn't get the word Russia into a joint statement with India, Japan, and Australia. And the writers also bemoan other issues that were covered there as well. John, how does China view America? And is China a rival competitive state as a dangerous adversary of America and the West?
2: It's an interesting question, John. First of all, I think that we should at least take seriously what China itself says. Just like I think... In the past, we've made mistakes but not believing what the Soviet Union was saying, not believing what Nazi Germany was saying. These uh, countries are actually sometimes quite open about what they want to do. China has been very clear that it wants to replace the system that the United States has built since 1945, which has benefited not just the United States, but innumerable countries and people around the world brought them into a system that... Guaranteed security and free trade led to prosperity and ended any major war. I mean, we have not had a major great power war since 1945, and that's you know primarily thanks to the United States. And China has a long history going back 3,000 years. It views itself as the natural center of world politics, and it sees the last few hundred years as an aberration. And it wants, it has said openly, wants to replace the American-based system with one. Uh, centered around itself. Unfortunately, this is a country that governs through ruthless oppression, through autocracy. There's no democracy. There is starting to be the end, I think, uh, erosion of free markets and capitalism in China. This is not a world I think anybody wants to live in. Take uh, what's happened in Europe. Does China actually have any allies, actually any willing allies like the United States has throughout uh, Europe? Uh, In fact, more people want to join Uh, NATO and the European alliance now after Russia's invasion. So China, I think, is the great long-term threat, though, because of it's not just it's people focus on its capabilities, the billion or so people, the large market, its massive arms race. But it's also tied to its, um, as you point out, Joel, its objectives, what it's openly saying about what it wants to do with that military, what it wants to do with its wealth and population. And that's the danger. I mean, we don't worry about Britain and France even and Germany, even though they're quite powerful countries, because we know their intentions are friendly to us. It's uh, China that's the real threat to us in the long run, much more, I think, actually than, in fact, than Russia.
0: John, we truly thank you so much for your time. These discussions with you are so enlightening, and we trust that our engaged listeners will find Uh, greater information about what you're doing by going to the search engines. Professor John Yu is the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley. He also serves as a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. Professor John Yu, thank you so much for taking time and joining us on America's Roundtable.
1: Thank you so much, John.
0: Thank you, Joel. Thank
2: you, Natasha. It's been wonderful uh, to be back with you again.
0: Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO.
1: America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.